Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Welcome to the Mike Smith Show podcast. This is your one-stop shop for all the latest happenings in BC. From breaking news and developing stories to giving the big headlines a closer look, the Mike Smith Show is here to keep you dialed in and up to date. Let's begin. First, we start with crime and how it's affecting small business, broken windows, graffiti, shoplifting. We've talked a lot about this on the show. Should taxpayers now help out some of these businesses with these costs? Broken windows, cleaning up graffiti. We see this all the time now. I got Liberal MLA Todd Stone standing by. First, have a listen to this report here now. Global News reporter Romina Dea on the brazen robbery at the, the Gucci store in downtown Vancouver. Let's listen. They ransacked the store. They took approximately $20,000 worth of store merchandise. A clean getaway. Almost. Both suspects peeling off their disguises before they leave the scene. Clear images of their faces caught on surveillance camera. We are hoping by releasing this video today that members of the public will recognize who these men are and call us. Okay, a lot of small businesses are getting hammered with these crime costs. Should the government help them out? Let's discuss now with my guest, Liberal MLA Todd Stone, Kamloops South Thompson. Very pleased to welcome him back. Todd, thank you for coming on. Good morning, Mike. Thanks a lot for doing it. What are you hearing from your constituents and, and your people when, about crime when, as it affects small businesses? What are they telling you? Well, I think we're seeing it all over the province in communities, uh, uh, you know, downtowns, uh, everywhere, uh, where small businesses for, for a good number of years now have been hit really hard, kind of caught in the middle. Uh, we, we've profiled many times uh, on your show and, and elsewhere, you know, the, the challenges uh, with the, the mental health and addiction crisis and, and what that means uh, for, for, the, for the vulnerable populations. We've profiled a lot of the crime that's taking place and the random attacks that, that people are suffering and so forth. Um, caught in the middle of all of this uh, are a heck of a lot of small businesses that are facing literally on a daily basis uh, huge amounts of vandalism, uh, uh, shoplifting, uh, you know, damage to their property, broken glass, et cetera. And, you know, on the one hand, a lot of these businesses are saying uh, their, their employees increasingly don't feel safe, their staff um, or their uh, customers don't feel safe, revenues uh, in many cases are, are, are dropping as a result of, uh, of, of how people feel about their personal safety. And then on the other side, they're getting squeezed with um, a, a, a big spike in, in expenses related to uh, security measures and, and uh, you know, even just fixing, uh, fixing broken glass on a repeated basis. So I, that's yeah. what I'm hearing in Canada. I'm hearing that, you know, in communities all across the province. Oh, yeah, and some of these costs can be huge. I mean, fixing broken windows. <laughs> Talk to people who have had their windows repeatedly smashed, and they've got bills in the multiple thousands of dollars to have these windows repaired over and over and over again because it just keeps happening. Let's have a listen to Jeff. Jeff Bray here. He represents downtown businesses in Victoria, saying businesses want some help with these crime costs. Let's listen. This is a recognition that we have some issues on our streets, not just Victoria, but in uh, downtowns throughout British Columbia and indeed nationally. 
uh, and that governments need to step up in a number of different ways to deal with it. Okay, so he's saying the government needs to step up. So what are you calling on government to do here, Todd Stone? Well, we think that the uh, uh, the Business Improvement Association of BC, which represents um, uh, most of the BIAs across British Columbia, uh, we think they've come up with a really good proposal. What they're proposing is uh, that, uh, the, that the, the BC government create a, a province-wide grant program uh, that would be administered by uh, BIAs uh, and, and, and or local governments uh, to assist uh, uh, the hardest hit uh, small businesses with, uh, with a lot of these, these costs related to social disorder, vandalism and crime. Uh, and to your point around um, uh, around a broken glass, I just met yeah. with a constituent yesterday in Kamloops and, you know, she, she's had to, to replace uh, one pane of, of glass. It's a, it's a large pane of glass, but, but one pane of glass three times. It's $4,000 per occurrence. Um, and she's now, you know, being told that uh, uh, when when she renews her uh, her insurance policy, uh, it, it, it the costs for the for, for that for the, the broken glass um, coverage uh, is is likely going to increase by by about two hundred percent, and and the deductibles uh, as well. So you know, this is a big problem. Uh, the city of Vancouver uh, flowed some some funds to uh, to. Uh, the 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 22 BIAs there a, a couple hundred thousand dollars uh, late last year. Uh, the city of Victoria uh, flowed uh, some 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 money to the downtown Victoria Business Association that's done a great job administering. You know, it, it just doesn't go to anybody. I mean, a business has to it has to provide proof of the vandalism, for example, receipts of, of repairs or the police file or you know, proof of their insurance deductible, those kinds of things. But it can be administered uh, pretty quickly and. You know, uh, you just you, you set a, a cap on on what the dollar amount is, whether it's a thousand bucks or two thousand or five thousand, and and um, and you go from there. It would just be a, a a lifeline, I think, for a lot of these small businesses that have just uh, been hit so hard uh, through no fault of their own. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that issue about the insurance because some people might think, okay, if someone breaks your windows, we'll just file an insurance claim. And I've talked to business owners as well who have said, look, their insurers are getting fed up too. So they're being told, you know, we're going to hike up your premiums or we're not going to cover broken windows anymore. So a lot of businesses are just eating these costs. You know, they got a broken window. They don't want to file another insurance claim because they're afraid of their premiums going through the roof. So a lot of businesses are just absorbing these costs themselves. But here's what I want to ask you. Why should taxpayers pick up the bill for this stuff? I mean, isn't this, isn't this the cost of doing business? I mean, sometimes this stuff happens. Like, I realize it's bad right now, Maybe the worst ever. But why should taxpayers pay for it? Well, look, I, I, you know, I think the social disorder, the, the vandalism, the crime that we're seeing um, at, at levels uh, never, never seen before uh, it dictates that uh, you know, rec- recognizing small businesses are caught in the middle of all this. Uh, if we want small businesses to continue to exist on our in our downtown, uh, in our community cores, in our neighborhoods, uh, they need some support, uh, not forever. And and let me be clear, we're not advocating, nor is the B- uh, the, the BIABC uh, advocating, uh, you know, for financial assistance to support you know struggling businesses per se. What we're saying is, if you're a business that uh, through no fault of your own, um, happens to be located in an area that over the last number of years has seen a significant spike in social disorder and crime and vandalism, and you're facing uh, the prospects of having to replace uh, the same pane of glass multiple times, your insurer is, is now saying that they're, they're not going to include it or their your deductibles are going through the roof. If we want that yeah. small business to survive this period of time, uh, they need some help. And uh, we're not talking about multi, multi-millions of dollars here, I don't think. Uh, I think we're talking about 
um, you know, flowing some some uh, some much needed support in in the here and now, uh, and uh, and have the BIAs administer that. Well, it's a long ways to uh, to helping a lot of small businesses. Uh, well, many of them are saying oh, that they're they're not sure they're gonna they're gonna make it uh, if this oh, continues. Okay, well, how much money are we talking here? I mean, a program like this would be province wide. You just heard that official from Victoria saying this is downtowns and cities and communities all across British Columbia are seeing this type of mayhem. So this could be a lot of money. I mean, there's a lot of broken windows out there. There's a lot of shoplifting going on. There's a lot of graffiti. How much could this cost? Well, uh, again, uh, the, the BIA BC is, uh, is saying that they have uh, a number of programs around the province. Uh, the city of Victoria, uh, they started with a, a $60,000 uh, uh, investment. Uh, they, they're apparently going to top that up uh, quite a bit. City of Vancouver is a couple hundred thousand dollars. Um, they're they're really scratching the surface. To your point, so you know we're probably talking you know uh, several millions of dollars on a province wide basis. But uh, right. I think the 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 trade off is you know if you don't aren't prepared to step up and and provide some some support for these businesses in recognition of all the social disorder and the crime that that you know they've had nothing to do with with bringing about in their neighborhood. Right. Uh, they just want to go about continuing to be that pizza shop or that dress store or, or whatever it is that they happen to do. Um, they're not going to be hanging around for much longer and be in business for much longer if they don't get some support with some of okay. these, uh, these vandalism uh, and crime-related costs. Hey, Todd, real quickly, while I have you here, the B.C. Liberal Party rebranding today. Tonight is the kickoff of the B.C. United Party. The party lo- logo will be the big reveal tonight. Are you, you're on board with this, right? You support the name change to BC United. Oh, one hundred percent. I'm excited. Yeah. It's a big day for a uh, big day for us. Where it will be uh, BC United uh, in a matter of hours. This will uh, likely be the last interview that I do as uh, as a BC yeah. Liberal MLA. So there you go. <laughs> it's okay. exciting. It's just it's not it's not uh, you know it's not the the, the the panacea at all. But it's one piece of an, a very important. Uh, program of renewal that uh, Kevin Falcon, our leader, has committed to. The members overwhelmingly endorse this, and I think British Columbians are going to be excited uh, when they see the, um, uh, the 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 logo, the branding, the the colors. Uh, it's going to take a lot of people by surprise because it's, it's not going to look and feel like your traditional uh, political party. Oh, okay. Well, that sounds interesting. Thank you for coming on today. Thanks, Mike. Have a great day. All right, let's talk about the changes to the BC Motor Vehicle Act now introduced in the legislature. I think this one has been flying under the radar a little bit here, especially when it comes to some of the regulations that are proposed in this bill. There is a lot in here, including creating a new definition of road user, a vulnerable road user under the law here. Vulnerable road user. That is basically a cyclist or a pedestrian. Now, check this out. Minimum following distances here. Minimum passing distances. So if you're a motorist, it's a minimum one meter distance for passing a cyclist or a vulnerable road user. How about following a cyclist on the road? Minimum distance, three meters. Three meters is the minimum following distance on the road. Talked about this on the show the other day. Lawyer Kyla Lee and some of her concerns on this. She's a traffic lawyer. Let's listen. 
I mean, it makes sense, certainly, for safety. I am um, concerned about the way that it's going to be used in cases where cyclists aren't adhering to their continuing obligation to ride as far right as practicable, Um, that it could cause some, you know, significant traffic snarls. Um, But, I mean, I guess we'll see how it plays out in, uh, in, you know, reality. Okay, let's discuss now with my guest, BC Transportation Minister Rob Fleming. Very pleased to welcome him back. Minister, thank you for coming on. Uh, Thanks for having me, Mike. You bet. Okay, so let's talk about these new rules of the road here proposed in this bill when it comes to cyclists. So tell me about these passing and following minimum distances here. How is this going to work? Yeah, so what we're trying to do is is codify in law, and we'll follow this up with broad education programs through BCAA, ICBC, uh, Police Chiefs Association, cycling organizations, so that drivers are educated. I mean, I think most drivers do exercise due caution and care around cyclists, but we know some of them don't. And in some cases that has led to uh, collisions that have cr- caused injuries or worse. Uh, one meter is the safe passing distance, the, the, the sort of birth you must give uh, a cyclist if your vehicle is uh, passing uh, a cyclist. And three meters is the, is the minimum. Uh, follow-on distance. So this kind of takes care of tailgating and getting too close uh, to a cyclist, so close, in fact, that you might clip their handlebars. And we know that those kinds of accidents have happened. So we've, we've got a lot of other North American jurisdictions that have similar legislation, but BC is going to be the first to have um, follow-on and safe passing legislation. And we think this is going to make a big difference to promote uh, safety on the road. Okay, what about a situation, as you heard lawyer Kyla Lee there described to me on an earlier show, like let's say a cyclist is not, is not close enough to the curb, maybe they're too far left, and now you've got to, and maybe it's a narrow road, a narrow lane, and now you have to veer potentially even across a double yellow line or maybe even to into incoming traffic to make sure you, adi- you have adequate passing distance to go around this bicycle could a driver be ticketed for crossing a double yellow line if they're passing a a bike well a driver if they're paying attention to uh, road conditions including oncoming traffic and 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 judges them to be safe to cross a solid yellow line can do so that's uh, in the motor vehicle act but they have to give a one meter uh, space uh, adjacent to a cyclist uh, when they're passing them. Um, that's common sense right now, and I think a lot of drivers exercise that due care and attention, but yeah. some don't, and they're going to need to be, you know, we're, we're going to be committed to educating drivers on what that distance looks like. I mean, I think people <laughs> have a better sense of metric distances after we've been through social distancing, but they need to understand what that means uh, in a in a setting where we've got vulnerable user road users, including pedestrians and cyclists, uh, to be able to uh, judge that accurately so that everybody feels safe on the road. One of the things what? about safety, Mike, is that yeah. if we want to get more people uh, riding their bike to, to work or for pleasure and leaving the car at home, uh, they, need to be feel sa- they need to feel safer. Uh, study after study, focus group after focus group have all said uh, a number of people would uh, use their bicycle more frequently uh, for everyday activities, uh, commuting activities, if they felt like the roads were safer, if they felt more protected. What is the potential penalty for breaking this rule? Like, let's say you pass a cyclist less than one meter distance or you follow a cyclist less than three meters. You, you potentially get a ticket? 
That's right. Uh, so we're going to step up the enforcement and increase the fines. Uh, we always have to work with the judiciary on what those fines uh, can look like. And some people will feel that uh, they're too low, especially where somebody is clearly uh, driving dangerously and putting somebody else at risk. Uh, but that's uh, something that can be changed over time. But we are going to uh, amend the offense code and make it a lot more expensive for those who are um, taking risks with other people's safety. Speaking to Transportation Minister Rob Fleming about new passing and following distances for motorists as they pass and follow cyclists on the road. Now, we got a lot of questions and reaction to this issue the other day on the show. Minister, let me play a, a clip here for you for your thoughts. So this is traffic lawyer Kyla Lee, and, listen, and we're talking to a caller on the open line, Walter who wondered, well, wait a second here, does the law work both ways here? Can a cyclist be ticketed for breaking the rules here? Let's have a listen, and I'll get, get your thoughts. I'm in slow-moving traffic, and i got bikes zipping beside me, like within inches of my vehicle. So would this one-meter rule also be enforced on them? Oh, does it work both ways, Kyla? It does not work both ways. It's oh. the obligation of the driver to give the room to the vulnerable road user. Okay, so you, uh, the driver has to make sure there's a minimum one meter distance but if the cyclist is passing a motor vehicle it doesn't work the other way the the cyclist can pass closer than one meter if the cyclist is passing a vehicle minister is that correct no it's one meter for everybody using the roads um and right. you know the problem really though is uh the competition between you know six thousand pound packages of steel versus um yeah. You know, human flesh and bones on a on a light bicycle. That's that's yeah. really the risk here. So, you know, obviously the driver can inflict a lot more damage than the other way around to, to a cyclist. And we've had some tragic accidents. Um, I don't even have to list them off. I, I I know you know just from the capital region, a young teenage boy struck um, just over a year ago, and 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 on and on it goes. Uh, and we know that these safe passing distances work. We're also investing in, in cyclist education. So we have a very robust partnership with some organizations working in school districts, uh, teaching kids how to ride safely to school in grades four and five. Tens of thousands of kids have been trained about what the rules of the road are and, and to be responsible uh, cyclists and be aware of their surroundings. Now we need some, some laws that make it clearer for drivers what the do's and don'ts are. Because I think a lot of people instinctively um, are, as I say, taking due care and attention uh, about who they're sharing the road with, um, but some of them are not. And the evidence don't, doesn't it work? Doesn't it work the other way too, though? I mean, don't some cyclists sure. also break the rules? Yeah, and there were some advocates when we were doing consultation for this legislation that wanted to have a, a, a rule that was, you know, incongruent with with motorists. They wanted to be able to, you know, run stoplights and and those sorts of things. And, uh, you know, we respectfully declined to do that because, um, you know, you have to have some equivalency here. Uh, but the greatest need here and certainly what motivates these Motor Vehicle Act amendments uh, are the fact that there are far too many cyclists getting injured by uh, drivers who are uh, not uh, paying uh, attention properly or, or even, um, you know, displaying a, a aggressive driving behavior that's uh, really a menace to everybody's safety. Speaking of Transportation Minister Rob Fleming, let me ask you about electric bicycles and electric scooters. These are becoming super popular, and you can understand why. I mean, they're just awesome uh, pieces of technology. People are getting 
just going broke at the gas pump. So sure, why not go for an e-bike, an electric bicycle? Tell me about, like, I, I look in the bill and I see there's some room here that would allow regulations here to create, what, new laws, new regulations on electric bicycles. Is that correct? That's right. That's right. And, you know, we're in the middle of an e-bike revolution. You only have to look at the sales and the number of new e-bike shops that have popped up in communities around BC and uh, all over the world. Um, you know, people, commutes that were, say, more than five or eight kilometers, uh, maybe 10 kilometers, uh, were out of reach for a lot of people. You know, they felt like it had to be a triathlete to, to go 20 kilometers to work. And now with pedal-assisted uh, e-bikes, uh carry much longer distances and um, get to work in, in a very timely manner. Uh, sure. You can see, you can see a lot of investments. Certainly the ministry of transportation is making them on every road improvement we do, where we try and incorporate multi-use pathways. A number of cities, municipalities, rural, di- rural, uh, regional districts are also investing in that kind of infrastructure because um, it's more and more popular. And uh, we have a number of disused railway corridors in my area, the Capital Regional District, that have become extremely popular uh, cycling corridors that literally thousands of commuters use each and every day. Okay, is it possible the government could require electric bicycles to be licensed and or insured? Well, anything is possible, but that is not contemplated right now. We don't. We simply don't see a need for it uh, at this time. I, I know a uh, hundred years ago or something like that, before uh, the Model T was popularized, there were uh, cycling license plates in the province of British Columbia and in, in, in city municipalities. But uh, uh, that kind of regulation right now, there's there's just not a, a public need for it. Why is there not a public need for it? I mean, if it's becoming more and more popular and these bikes can go quicker and the batteries last longer, more and more people are buying them, they're becoming major users of our road system. Why would they not? Why would you not consider requiring licensing or insurance? I think if you were to consider something like that, you'd need a lot of evidence that uh, that that had a public benefit, and we're not seeing that right now. What we are seeing is the evidence from other jurisdictions that if you want to reduce uh, injuries and fatalities, uh, primarily of cyclists involved, uh, where there's, uh, you know, a, a car uh, crashing into them or a truck. Uh, you have to have the types of things that we're taking in, in Bill 23 and make that law uh, safe passing distances, minimum follow on distances. And I think also um, bicycle specific infrastructure uh, needs to uh, continue to have investment since just since I've become the Minister of Transportation. I think we've had an eightfold increase in active transportation uh, infrastructure investments. We're going to do more of that. We're looking forward to trying to uh, leverage the federal government that came up with a national active transportation fund uh, to do even more of that. And intercommunity uh, longer commute uh, cycling infrastructure is is really important, and there's a lot of interest in it in communities both in the north, the interior here on Vancouver Island and, of course, in Metro Vancouver. Minister, thank you for your time today. I appreciate it. Mike, thanks for having me. Okay, here we go now with Josh Morgerman, professional storm chaser, and I'm very pleased to welcome Josh back to the show. Josh is a wild weather expert. He chases the most powerful storms all around the world, when these big hurricanes are bearing down in places like the Gulf Coast or the Caribbean and everybody else is trying to get away, 
He's going in the other direction. He's literally heading into the eye of the storm, and he's been in the middle of some of the biggest hurricanes we have seen here over the past decade or more. And I'm very pleased to welcome him back to the show. His new show, his new online show is Mission Hurricane. Very pleased to welcome him. Josh, thanks for coming on today. Mike, it's awesome to be back. Really is. Thank you very much. Yeah, I appreciate you appreciate you being here. Where where are you based today? Are you chasing a storm today or what's happening? No, no, this is the off season. So I'm in Texas right now for a hurricane conference. This is the time of year when we talk about hurricanes because the season's about to start, but not yet because the water in the Gulf of Mexico and the Atlantic is still a little too cold. But yeah, this is the time that uh, folks down here start preparing. So I go and I do speaking engagements, telling people about hurricanes, how to prepare and uh, what to expect. Okay, Josh, I'm just checking out your your YouTube channel, your Twitter page. I encourage people to check it out. iCyclone is your handle there on Twitter. And man, some of these YouTube videos are just unbelievable because you're right in the middle of some of the biggest storms we've ever seen. Let's uh, listen to a little bit of one here. So this is Hurricane Maria, Puerto Rico, 2017. This is 3.2 million views on YouTube. And here's a little listen to Josh here. Winds are starting to really pick up here in Humacao. Just in the last half hour or so, the wind started to get kind of a real tug to it. Uh, rain coming down harder. Uh, the gate is swinging open and shut. Branches are coming off the trees. And the communications are starting to get dicey. You know, when I look on the radar, I can see we're starting to get into those inner rain bands. And uh, as that outer eye wall approaches us, and I think that it's just going to get much worse from here. Yeah, yeah, and it did. <laughs> it did get much oh, yeah. worse from there. If you want, do you remember that one in Puerto Rico? Oh yeah, that was that was an absolute. That was one of the worst I've been in. It was a high end Category Four hurricane, just a shade short of Category Five, and it barreled. It just broadsided uh, Puerto Rico, traversed the whole length of the island devastated the place, changed lives, and years later, the scars are still there. That was a tremendous impact. Let's listen to another one here. So. I mean, man, you've been in the middle of like the big ones here. So Hurricane Dorian, this was this was a huge hurricane. Oh, here, yeah. Here's Josh in the Bahamas. This is 2020. Let's have a listen here and I'll talk to Josh. Two days after Hurricane Dorian smashed this place and the wind is still howling, still raining hard. Just have this feeling that this thing is never going to end. Never been in a hurricane like this. Just feels like it won't end. And I'm sure folks here are really just tired. Folks who've lost everything. Okay, now the crazy thing about that and that particular video, Josh, I was watching it again last night, is that audio we just heard there, that was like two days after the major hurricane and it was still howling. Yeah, that was a crazy, that was a, a an unbelievable impact. First of all, the, the, the core of that hurricane, that was the strongest hurricane on record to strike North America. It hit Abaco Island with sustained winds of 185 miles an hour, tied with a hurricane in 1935 that hit Florida. But the other special thing about it was how slowly it moved. So two days later, we were still in it, as I was saying there, and it was, yeah. it was horrible for the victims of it because you know just think about it you lose your house you lose everything and it's still storming two days later you can't even start to try to pick up the pieces yeah no i encourage people to check that out online because you can hear the winds like still howling like two days 
two days later. And the devastation of that one, Hurricane Dorian. Uh, man, like, where do you rank that one? Is that the biggest one you've ever been in? Yes, I, I, I rank that. I would say I have two that are tied for first place in terms of the just the level of impact on the places they struck. And one was Dorian, which uh, devastated Abaco, Great Abaco Islands in the Bahamas, wiped out the city, the main city on that island called Marsh Harbor. Devastation that's so tremendous. I think that, you know, 10 years from now, they still won't have recovered completely. And then the other one would be Super Typhoon Haiyan in the Philippines, uh, which was an equivalent of a Category 5 hurricane on our scale that devastated a large city there and killed thousands. I was there for that impact. And I would say those two were tied for first place and just in terms of showing the just the terribly, the, the awesome and terrible destructive power of these things. Uh, speaking of Josh Morgerman, professional storm chaser, his new series, Mission Hurricane. And Josh, I'm just amazed at what you do here. I mean, some people I'm sure would think you're crazy, when you get these big storms and people are trying to get away and you're going the other direction. Let's have a listen here to, okay, this is Hurricane Laura, Louisiana. Now, this in this part of this video, you describe how you're, you're watching the path of this storm online and then you're deciding how to get into the eye of it here. Let's have a listen. 725 Wednesday. I'm in Orange, Texas, but I made the big decision to relocate further east. I'm heading to Sulphur, Louisiana, and that's because of the radar motion of Hurricane Laura. I'm watching it and I'm noticing that the eye is kind of turning more toward the right, having more of a northerly component, and that tells me I've got to head east if I want to punch that core. Punch that core. Yeah. Well, that's you know, so a hurricane, you know, the, the eye is the center and that's calm, but that calm area is surrounded by the most violent part of the hurricane. It's a ring of crazy wind and extremely heavy rain. That's called the eye wall. And that's the, you want to get inside that. So it's about hunting that down. If you want to get a bullseye hit, because that's where the real action is. And also signed, you know, I collect data inside these things. I don't want to nerd out on you and your uh, listeners, but I want to collect data inside these hurricanes and the most valuable data are in that eye in that center so that's what i'm going for okay so josh why do you do this now i mean i'm sure you've been asked this a million times but man you put yourself in danger here i mean the footage that you collect here is just inc incredible to watch but you know i'm sure myself and other people are watching this like, why does this guy do this what drives this guy to chase these storms yes the thing i'm most often asked i say it's basically sort of like a, a like sort of a <laughs> like a, a mental defect that you're born with, you know, where you're just, um, no, seriously. I mean, the, the folks I know who chase professionally, like I do and really chase, you know, hardcore, you know, full-time professional storm chasers, you know, you're just, you're born with this, just this, um, this fascination. You're just drawn to violent weather and you don't know why. And it's almost like your desire for food or for sex. It's that, the, the desire for it is that primal, like you just want to get in it and experience it. And it drives you to do crazy things because at all costs, you need to get into that storm and see it, feel it, document it. And, uh, you know, it'll, it'll, it'll drive you to do almost anything, including taking crazy risks and, you know, being trapped on random tropical islands for days and all kinds of other, uh, things. And in my new series, Mission Hurricane, I'll share my personal experiences from the eye of the storm. I'm on the beach with Mazute. The water's really coming up now. Follow me as I take you into the world's mightiest hurricanes. Prepare to get blown away. 
Okay, all right. That's my guest, Josh Morgerman there, and the trailer for his new series, Mission Hurricane. Josh is a professional storm chaser. He's been in the middle of some of the biggest hurricanes we've ever seen, including Hurricane Dorian, some of the biggest ones we've seen over the last 20 years. Hey, Josh, tell me a little bit about this show now you've got, Mission Hurricane. How can people watch this? You watch it online, right? Yeah, you can watch it online or on your connected TV. So if you have Apple TV or Roku or any of those, the channel is Weather Spy. But if you don't have those, you can also just get the Weather Spy app on your mobile device, your tablet, your phone, whatever, and you could watch it on there. And again, the show is called Mission Hurricane, well, as you've said. Okay, I've got Apple TV at home, so you can get it on there too, right? Yeah, totally. And a new episode premieres every Sunday night uh, at um, 7 p.m. Eastern time. And if you miss it, it's cool. You can watch the um, you can watch the back episodes on demand anytime. Okay, what can people expect if they tune into the show? What do you have on there? Well, you're going to go deep inside the the worst hurricanes all around the world over the last, uh, like you said, two decades. Uh, I've been in more hurricanes on the ground than any person in history, dead or alive. I've been inside the cores of 67 hurricanes. That's a that's a world record. No, no one's been in as many. And I've seen some crazy storms on every continent. And this show, each one is a journey inside into the jaws of one of these. And uh, there are legendary ones that people might remember from the news a lot of them yeah holy yeah. smokes 60 67 hurricanes yeah 67 wow. and that's ones where i only count the ones where i got into what i was t- describing before the core the eyewall the scary part if i don't get inside that part it doesn't count so there's 67 kind of bullseye hits uh since uh since i started doing this okay now speaking of scary experiences here tell me like what was the scariest moment for you i mean did you ever you're a fear for your life when you're in the middle of one of these things. Oh, absolutely. You know, I say like a chaser dude has like nine lives and I've, I've definitely used a couple of them, you know, um, I'm trying to think, I mean, there's definitely a couple up there. And by the way, mission hurricane, they basically, the, the, the director and the producers, they crafted the series around what were my sort of, um, near death experiences. Those made for the best episodes. Of course. Um, I would say, Hurricane Dorian in the Bahamas was one because the force of the storm was so incredible, wrote it out in a concrete classroom that almost collapsed from the force of the wind and then being trapped there for days afterward. You know, that was sort of a survival tale in itself. Uh, Super Typhoon Haiyan in the Philippines, a storm surge came in and the whole city uh, I was in went underwater. I had to jump in the water and rescue people. That was kind of, that was something else. And then I would say Hurricane Odile in Mexico I was in a hotel lobby when all of the windows exploded and the whole lobby just started to come crashing down walls and everything. Those are probably some of the some of the high adrenaline moments, the, the, the moments that I can't I can't quite erase from my memory. Holy smokes. OK. And I encourage people if they check out your YouTube channel, I mean, the videos are just crazy. Some of the stuff that you've been in. Now, we talked earlier about like what drives you on this and you talked about how. It, it sounds like it sounds like it's almost like an addiction for you, right? Like you're just wired to follow these storms. 
A hundred percent. It is absolutely yeah. an addiction. Some folks I get, they get a little squeamish at hearing me use that type of language, but that's absolutely what it is. You know, there are times yeah. when yeah. I don't want to go chasing. I'm not in the mood to, but it's like, you know, storm chasers have the worst FOMO fear of missing out. And that fear that I might miss an historical storm means I'm going to go chasing, even if I'm feeling under the weather, even if I'm burned out, even if I like my body says, no, I'm just going to go for it. So in that sense, it's a, it's a slightly um, imbalanced lifestyle at times. You're kind of you're pushing yourself beyond your limits. Yeah. Yeah. What are, what is, uh, what do your friends and family members think about all this? Do any of them ever sit you down and say, Josh, man, we're worried about you here. We think you should stop doing this, pushing your luck. Early on, like my parents used to get really upset about it. It was like a whole thing. And I could say 30 years later, my mother is, she's, uh, she's basically just covered with emotional scar tissue. She, she is unable to feel emotions about it anymore. So she's kind of toughened up. She doesn't worry anymore. <laughs> okay. okay. Well, that's, that's good to hear. Well, you certainly do collect some of the most dramatic video footage of, of these storms and what is your strategy on this? I mean, are you always kind of locked to the the weather channel or different meteorological services here to track these storms? And then how do you make the how do you make the call about where to go? It's the million dollar question is deciding when to deploy. Now, I live in Mississippi on the Gulf Coast during hurricane season. And if it's a local storm, one that's hitting the Gulf Coast, that's pretty easy. You just, you know, you just you just go for everything. But if it's a far away storm, like let's say it's going to hit Japan or Taiwan or just, you know, Australia, then it's a bigger question. It's, it's an important decision as to whether I should go or not, because there's a lot of money and time involved. Now, what I use in the early stages are computer models. So computer models are like these, they're computer programs that spit out weather maps of the future. It's like the chaser dude's crystal ball. And it's also what forecasters use. So you look at those computer models and they show the future, what they think is going to happen. And the models will show different things. So they won't always agree. So it's kind of the trick is to figure out which models are telling the truth, which ones are showing the accurate future. So it's using computer models to figure out where you think it's going to go. And then in the final 24 hours, as the hurricane is coming in, then you're using radar which is you're actually looking at images of the hurricane as it's coming in and you're literally trying to track down that eye that center which is a black hole on the radar and you're just trying to hunt that down minute by minute okay last question for you josh you just got about a minute left here would you say it seems to me like these hurricanes are getting more frequent they seem to be getting bigger they seem to be getting more powerful is that your perspective on it it's hard to say the relationship between climate change and hurricanes is not well understood. Um, one thing I'll say is in North America, we've had several bad hurricane seasons in a row. And in fact, Canadians, you guys have been affected as well, like by Fiona last year, which yeah. was devastating yeah. in, in Nova Scotia and uh, Newfoundland. But here's what's interesting. In North America, we've had all these really bad hurricane seasons. The rest of the world has actually been well below normal in terms of tropical cyclone activity the last few years. So scientists are working on trying to understand what what does climate change do to hurricanes? How does it impact them? In some ways, it seems like it might make them stronger, but in other ways, some folks are thinking maybe climate change might actually suppress development in certain areas. It's a complex question. Okay, Josh, it's been it's been a pleasure to have you on here today. Stay safe out there. Good luck with the new show, and thanks for coming on. Thanks so much, Mike. It's always great to be on your show. 
Thanks for listening to the Mike Smith Show podcast. Can't wait for the latest episode to drop. Tune into the show live from 9 to noon on 980 CKNW. Want to reach out to me personally with a question or comment? Send me an email, mike at cknw.com. Thanks again for listening.